Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5, where we will enter into our fourth sermon from the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Having described the character of the true followers of Jesus Christ, true Christians, and having comforted them in their afflicted character, then having exhorted them to be lights in the world and salt in the earth, and then having explained very clearly that he was not coming to undo the law or to destroy it, but rather to fulfill it, to establish it, and that if our righteousness did not exceed the righteousness of the most conservative religious leaders of that nation's religion, we had no right to heaven. He now takes up the first lesson of the body of his sermon, and he deals with personal relationships. The area that gives so many trouble, the many, the, the, the area where we are so tried and tempted, he deals with it first. And I'm going to read six verses this morning, beginning at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, down through verse 26. Follow along with me. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whiles thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Amen and amen. The Lord begins the body of the sermon. There is an introduction, there is a conclusion, and there is a body in between where he gives us lessons of righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ has taught us that if we are to be great in his kingdom, we must give attention to the least of his commandments. He said that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. And we want to give attention to the least of his commandments. He said in verse 20 that our righteousness had better exceed that of the religious leaders of his day, or we have no right to heaven. Let me remind you that Jesus Christ here is not speaking against witch doctors of the Zulus. He is not speaking against the philosophers of the Greeks. He is speaking against the fundamentalists of the Jews' religion who had so corrupted the interpretation of God's word that it no longer carried any weight. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to restore the word of God to its full intent that God had always intended by it. What is the simplest commandment, do you think, of the ten? What might be the simplest commandment? Thou shalt not kill doesn't sound very complicated. Everyone in here would read, Thou shalt not kill, and you have within you the self-righteous interpretational skills of a Pharisee. I've never broken that commandment. Every one of you, including the infant children, are serial killers in the sight of God. Every one of you. Every time... You hear an infant leave its ordinary unhappy cry and go into a rage. It is cursing you 
and every other man for not catering to it. It has anger in its heart without a cause, and it is calling you a whole lot more than Raka and thou fool. Every parent, especially men, that have a godly heart understand that because you hear the rage. The rage comes through. The face begins to sweat and it gets red as they can hardly breathe because they're so enraged that you have not bowed before their throne, kissed their toe, and offered your eternal service. We are all serial killers when we understand the commandment, Thou shalt not kill in truth. I want you to see that Jesus Christ is not setting up His religion against the law of Moses. He's going to use the word but to open the 22nd verse. His but is a disjunctive. It means he's setting something in opposition to something else. But the opposition is his opposition against the oral preaching of the Pharisees that taught the tradition of the elders rather than the Word of God. Of course they included some of the Word of God. All counterfeit dollar bills look something like a dollar bill. If they didn't look like a dollar bill, you would never accept it as money. Preaching always uses something from the Word of God to sound like it's scriptural. But it is the corruption of God's Word that Jesus will correct. It is easy to miss these verses. So many have thought that Jesus was setting up a gentler form of religion than had been established under the Old Testament. They think that verse 21 is Jesus taking Moses, and verse 22 is, his new religion is gentler than Moses. We don't even get angry in my religion. That's what they think. And they become pacifists, and they become effeminate, and they become compromisers because they miss the lesson. There's cough drops on the table if you need one. Let's look at verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus went after what we might think is the simplest commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus went after the commandment that we might think we've never broken it. This is why the people are astonished when they get to the end of this sermon Because he convicts them all about a commandment they thought they didn't even have to worry about. Ye have heard. I want you to notice that. It does not say it is written. When Jesus is referring to the scriptures, he knows how to say it is written. When the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil, after his baptism, three times he said it is written. To defend why he would not obey the suggestions of the devil. He knows how to say those words. But he is not dealing with what is written. He is dealing with what was preached by the scribes and the Pharisees. Ye have heard. Ye have heard. When you go to the synagogue and you hear the scriptures read and explained, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. You have heard the tradition of the elders. This said of old time is not Moses. Said of old time are the Jewish elders the scribes and the rabbis that came before the present generation. You have heard the tradition of the Jews' religion that thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. You have heard an interpretation and application of the sixth commandment, meaning you are not to take the life of another person, and if you take the life of another person, you're in danger of the judgment. And the judgment here is the judgment of the congregation of Israel. That's what you've been taught. But I say unto you, here's the Lord Jesus Christ broadening and expanding the commandment, thou shalt not kill, to include a whole lot more than ramming a buoy knife into some man's chest or taking a sledgehammer and dashing his brains out. There's a whole lot of other ways that are viewed as a violation of the Sixth Commandment 
in the sight of God than just those. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The preaching that you people have been listening to, and I want you to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ, he does not go through life defending all other preachers. Right now he's condemning them. The previous verse he said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of these pompous hypocrites, you'll never get close to heaven. And then he says, when they preach, they say that all that's involved in the sixth commandment is you taking the life of someone. But I say unto you that you've broken the sixth commandment when you're angry with your brother without a cause. Now, brethren, that is high doctrine. That is a high standard. You can be angry with your brother in your heart and no one even know it except the God of heaven. It may not do him the brother that you're angry at, any harm at all. But it is still murder in the sight of God. And you should be able to reason through why he would count that as murder. Because if you're angry with your brother without a cause, if you have enough hatred and wickedness and blackness in your soul that you can get angry at other people without a justifiable cause that God defines, not you, then he knows that you have within you the makings of a murderer. Because all murder stems from anger or a violent action of someone against another. And if you've got it in your heart, though it may not come out, God counts it as the same. He knows the only reason you haven't done it is one of two. You didn't have the opportunity or you were afraid of getting in trouble for taking someone out of this life. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. What doctrine? He just crushed the Pharisees in one clause. He just destroyed false religion. It is easy to read the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, and think it doesn't apply to us. Jesus Christ just opened it up so that it applies to us. We're all serial killers because we have all been angry at our brothers and sisters before without a justifiable cause. When it says without a cause... You understand something. All murderers have a cause. They all have a motive. They all have a reason as to why they killed someone. They'll tell you what that person did to them. Or that they had a bad day. Or that their father abused them when they were a little boy. There's always a cause. But those causes don't mean anything to God. And when we get angry, if you were to be confronted by one of us, you would give us your little list of why you're angry. But God thinks your list stinks. Because if your list is not in His Word, it's not worth reading. It's not worth thinking about, and He won't accept it. Of course you have a cause for being angry. I always have good reasons, very good reasons why I get angry. I could list them for you. I could explanify them for you. I could outline them for you, why I get angry. But those aren't the causes that God's going to allow stand. If we get angry for anything beyond sin, sin in the sight of God, not offense against us. Offense against you isn't a sin because you're not worthy for somebody doing something against you for it to be called a sin. Of course there's exceptions, but I'm not going to worry about them. Most of the things people get angry about are so far from sin it's pitiful. Angry with your brother without a cause is to break the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Amazing. You always have a cause. You always have a reason for your anger. But unless it's a reason that God justifies because you're defending God's integrity or you're standing for holiness against public sinners, it's not a cause that God's going to listen to. And there you go again. You're adding to your list of serial killings that you're going to have to give an account of when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We will stand at the bar of judgment of the God of heaven and give an account for all the people that we have killed in our lives. Killed by anger in our breast. Killed by our lips, as we're about to read. There's no difference in the sight of God.
You know, this isn't really a new interpretation. When you look in the Bible, Proverbs 19 and verse 11 says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. Solomon had already taught that when you're angry, you should defer it. You should put it off, not think about it, not hold it, not talk about it, not do anything with it. You should defer it. You should put it off and say, I'll get angry later. You know, when you defer anger like that, you never get angry because by the time you get to later, it's already dissipated and gone. It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. But there's only one kind of man that, man that can do it, a glorious man. Right. Discre- He's a wise man because it says discretion. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. His wise choices in life never get upset about what other people do to him. And it is his glory. He is a glorious man because he passes over the transgressions of other people doing things against him. That is the word of the Lord of the Old Covenant. Jesus just expanded the Sixth Commandment back out to include it. We don't need to expand or contract the definition of his brother in Matthew 5.22 beyond his neighbor. Your brother does not have to be a regenerated, born-again child of God in your assembly. Everyone in Israel was a brother. Paul would stand up and speak to Jews and Gentile proselytes, men and brethren. It's our neighbors. Because the commandment is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The commandment is not just, thou shalt love thy friends as thyself. The commandment is now not, thou shalt love thy fellow church members as thyself. It's to love thy neighbor. The brother here is someone God's brought in a relationship with you, and you're offended at them. Without a cause. Without a justifiable cause in the sight of God. Do not let... Your little flimsy excuses for your anger ever justify or excuse your sin. Because you're a murderer. And when you stand before God, especially since I have taught you this passage, you will be held accountable for unjustified anger in the same light as a murderer. Let me remind you of what has been done to this verse in modern versions. Three words are missing from Matthew 5.22. They are the words without a cause. That fits the effeminate, compromising style of our generation just right. Their their versions read, with a few other minor corruptions, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. That there is no place for anger. They take out the words without a cause. Now what does that do to Moses? Who, when he came down from Mount Sinai with the tables of stones in his hands and saw what the people were doing, it said his anger waxed hot. This wasn't any little bit of anger. It was a lot of anger. Did, was Moses in danger of the judgment? Or was Moses looking for a crown of righteousness from the Lord God of heaven for his righteous indignation against his wicked brethren? How about God being angry with Moses for Moses striking the rock instead of speaking to it? You going to make him a sinner as well? Anger is not sin if you don't sin when you're angry. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. If you have such a black heart, that anger can find a lodging place to last overnight, you are truly wicked. You have given place to the devil, and you're operating under his influence. Because the Bible says, Be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Let it dissipate and disappear. If we're going to keep the sixth commandment. You know, it's this kind of Bible corruption that's left us an effeminate and compromising generation of Christianity in this country. God will judge hatred, wrath, envy, malice, malignity, and despite that is not justified by the word of God. But when men stand up and are righteously indignant about men sinning, and they want to oppose it, that kind of anger is righteous. But for little personal offenses against you, or for things that a person does that you just don't like, 
or because someone doesn't meet your standard, that doesn't have a thing to do with anger. That's just your petty little problem yourself. And you'll give an account for it if you resent or hold bitterness or anger or hatred against someone because they've mistreated you. You've broken the sixth commandment. You're angry with your brother without a justifiable cause. Let's go on further in the verse. Jesus continues. Now that is a matter of the heart. In your heart you can be a murderer even though you never picked up a knife. You never picked up a gun and pulled the trigger. But you were angry without a justifiable cause. You're a murderer. We're serial killers. We need a Savior. Amen. And we'll remember Him tonight. Right. That He came and died for us. Because we will give an account for our unjustified anger when we stand before Him. Jesus went on in the next clause to say, And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now Jesus is elevating the crimes here. It was, shall be in danger of the judgment. And the congregation, you have to go to a council to condemn someone as a murderer and have them put to death. Go read about the, the seven cities of refuge in Numbers chapter 35. A whole chapter is dedicated to them. If a murderer fled into one of those cities, and he was guilty of murder, it wasn't an accident. He would be brought outside of that city, and that city would make a judgment, and he'd be stoned to death. And the rules are laid out very plainly. The council was a ruling group of elders of Israel. Remember, Jethro had helped establish them so that Moses wouldn't be judging alone. There were other rulers. It's this council that Peter and John stood before when we got to Acts chapter 4 and 5. Jesus is just using their levels of judgment that the people were familiar with and pointing out, you've been taught that to be in danger of the judgment is only by taking a life. I'm telling you, unjustified anger will get you there. And calling your brother Raka will get you to the council. Because that is a sin that is horrible in the sight of God. And if this nation were prosecuting sins the way God had intended, you'd be before the council for calling your brother a worthless, stupid, good-for-nothing, vain fellow. And that's what the word Raka means. The word Raka is a Chaldean word the Jews used as for name-calling. The best example we have in the Bible is when David came home from his parade and his wife Michael met him. And she said, you acted today like one of the vain fellows. She'll, have her, she'll give an account for why she addressed her husband that way, and it will violate more than one commandment. Right. You know, when was the last time you said somebody was stupid? Because they didn't do things your way? You loser. What can you do better than someone else? Why are your thoughts better than someone else? When it comes to the matters of this life, we're all a bunch of losers. Right. You know, none of us can even hold on past the age of 70 or 80. We're going out of here. We can't hold on to life. We're going to get to a place where we can't even tie our shoes. We're going to have to be fed by someone else. We're a bunch of losers. Why would we ever call someone else stupid? Worthless. Now notice, this has gone to a new level of profanity. Right. To, think, to be angry in your heart against someone is one thing, because you can sneak around and do that. But to actually approach someone and tell them that you're worthless, or to say that about someone, you're worthless, you're good for nothing. You're in danger of the counsel and the opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am his ambassador, and I am thankful, and I am honored to be a teacher after him. This is true religion. If men were to ever live by this, it would be utopia on earth. The make-believe world they've dreamed up of what communism might get them. This is what would get you a wonderful earth. And that's living like this toward other men, toward other women. You're worthless. Has there ever been an overbearing father that said that to a son? Sometimes the father may have a justified right to say that. Bible writers had the justified right to say it to their audiences. Turn to James chapter 2 and verse 20, holding your hand at Matthew chapter 5. I want to explain to you 
in each case, we've already looked at the fact that unjustified anger is what Jesus condemned. Unjustified anger. Justified anger can be and should be a very good thing because you're angry against sin and you're angry for the integrity of God and his worship. How about calling someone a vain fellow? James chapter 2 and verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? There's the Apostle James speaking to a self-righteous man who thinks that his belief in Jesus is good enough for salvation. He calls him, O vain man. That's Raka. But he's doing it for the defense of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ because there were men standing against it that laid claim to the fact that they were righteous in the sight of God and God's elect and were justified with his righteousness simply by their faith and not by their works. And that was in defense of the gospel, not in defense of your own personal relationship, your own personal character in which you would call somebody else worthless. This language in the Bible is called reviling or railing. You have not read those two words in the last week in any magazine or newspaper. Reviling or railing is to use abusive language against someone, to tell them that they're worthless. Jesus considers that a violation of the sixth commandment. You're a murderer when you call somebody worthless or stupid or vain without a justifiable cause that God defines and gives. Wow, that should make us careful about our words. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that we'll give an account of every idle word in the day of judgment. By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. May God have mercy upon us, and may he teach us something from this lesson. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine that is according to godliness. These are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the standard of righteousness he set for his kingdom. The last part of verse 22. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now the God of hellfire is speaking. This is the Lord Jesus Christ whom God has appointed to be the judge of the quick and the dead. Paul stood on Mars Hill with all those Greek philosophers and told them, that God hath assured all men by raising Jesus Christ from the dead that he will be the judge of heaven and earth. And that day is fast approaching, brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge of all men, says that someone who calls another man a fool is going to be in danger of hellfire. Now you ask me, why do we have anger in your heart without a cause? Raka, a stupid, worthless fellow, and then thou fool. Are there grades of this murder? Is this last stage of murder more heinous than the first two? Yes. Thou fool. God chose the word fool in the Bible. And it's more than a worthless, empty fellow. A fool is someone that God has rejected. A fool is a reprobate. A fool, by the book of Proverbs, is more than just stupid. He's untrainable. He has no mind for God. He's a hater of God. The Bible would say this, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They're the atheistic rebels. And to call a man, Thou fool, in a strict use of the Bible word of fool, and using it to condemn them as you are not part of God's wise men, you are not part of God's children, is an added degree of offense in your name calling. You know, we've had Raka. You know, when you call your sister, you stupid idiot. And then we say, thou fool. But we're saying it religiously as a designation that God designed to say that a man is a reprobate. To say that a man is under the judgment of God and God's censure of him is to call him a fool. You've invoked what God only has the right to do. When you don't have a justifiable cause. All the way down through here, it is to be understood, the three words, without a cause. If you have a cause for anger, it is justified in the sight of God, but God gives the reasons that justify anger. 
If you have justifiable anger, you may call a person a vain fellow, just like James did in James chapter 2 and verse 20. And there may be a cause to call someone a fool, as Jesus called his own disciples fools. Oh, fools! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. But Jesus had a cause for doing that. He had taught them for three and a half years and they were not learning. And he is the Son of God. And he called them that. He had a justifiable cause for it. And so we have in these two verses, the Lord Jesus Christ taking the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees and showing its inadequacy, its narrow restrictions, so that the commandment, thou shalt not kill, had no meaning. I don't believe there's anyone in here that has ever been a murderer in the strict, literal, overt sense of that word. And so you just run over the words, thou shalt not kill. This is self-righteousness at its best. Self-righteousness is taking the commandments of God and getting rid of the little sections that apply to you and leaving it to something that you've never done. That's why Paul could say, I was blameless in the law. Well, yeah, Paul, you were blameless because by the time the scribes and Pharisees got done with the sixth commandment, you couldn't have committed it. Very few men have ever done it. I mean, how many in here have taken a knife or a gun and snuffed up life? So the Pharisees had reduced it to that only. And Jesus Christ restored it back to what it included. Anger in your heart that is unjustified. Hatred, malice, envy, wickedness, despising someone, despite. Then railing, reviling, and hatred coming through your lips. And then condemning them in the place of God when you don't have a justifiable reason to do so. Overbearing fathers that are tyrants and shoot off their mouths at their children. They'll give an account for every one to the God of heaven. And he looks out for fatherless children. And those are obviously fatherless children because they don't have a father. Because the Lord, when he appeals to real fathers, speaks of them giving gifts and pitying their children. Not crushing their children. We're told, fathers are told in the New Testament not to discourage your children or to provoke them to wrath. Those are verses 21 and 22. That is the standard of righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He condemned all the Bible commentaries of his day. He condemned the preaching of his day. He condemned the Robert Schulers that wanted to make everyone feel good and righteous by watering down the word of God until it didn't apply to anyone. This is why the people were astonished. And let's not be astonished. Let's tremble before the word of God. As Isaiah 66 and verse 2 tells us. Let's tremble before this. Let's guard our tongues. Let's guard our hearts. Every time someone offends us or does something we don't like, disagrees with, or doesn't meet our preferences, blow it off. Blow it off. Ignore it. Forget it. Don't repeat it to anyone. Don't even repeat it to yourself. Because that's going to build the internal anger that God condemns and our Lord condemned right here in these two verses. Therefore, because of what I have just explained, how the words thou shalt not kill actually apply to unjustified anger, name-calling, and condemning someone in the place of God. Because of what I've just explained, therefore, he explains... Do not try to worship me while you're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. If there is one thing that I could show you from the Old Testament, it is how God would tell them your oblations, sacrifices, your holy days, your coming before my presence is a stench to me because when you come, you have blood on your hands. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 59 are the most potent passages where God said, Your worship is a stink in my nostrils. I cannot away with it. I cannot stand it. I despise it. Because you come and stand before me in your fine clothing. You sing the songs. You hear the music. You bring your gifts. But you come with blood on your hands. And brethren, this is from the New Testament. And Jesus is saying, If you have unjustified anger or you have called someone worthless, or you've condemned them with your lips in the place of God, 
you have blood on your hands. You know, the Bible says if we're gonna, when men pray, they're to lift up holy hands. That's because they're showing the Lord, I have no blood on my hands. And do you know what it means to show the Lord, I have no blood on my hands? You have not railed on anyone. You have not called anyone stupid for anything short of going against the Word of God. You have not had unjustified anger in your heart. Only then can we hold up pure hands and holy hands. Only then do we have a pure heart before God. He does not want our worship. He says, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, you're on your way into Jerusalem to the temple, and you've brought a gift, a free will offering of your heart. How precious. He's so excited that you made it to church on Sunday morning. I speak as a fool. He says, on your way to church, if you remember that there are hard feelings between you and someone else, put that gift down. Do not bring it to my altar. I'm not going to accept it. Then you will not only be guilty of murder, you'll be guilty of blasphemy for coming into my house and compromising my worship. Put your gift down and go be reconciled to your brother. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. That is the order of true religion. Self-examination. How are you ever going to remember? You know, melancholies can remember better than the other temperaments. It's just a flat-out fact of life. Some people can't remember what they did five minutes ago. Let alone three days ago or two weeks ago. So what do you have to do? You have to go through a process of self-examination. You're on your way to the altar to give a gift to God. Instead of thinking, what a holy Joe I am. I hope everyone sees how big this gift is. I hope everyone notices me at church. I hope they see that I'm early. I hope they see that I've dressed modestly. I hope they see that I really love the Lord, that I sing louder than anyone else. The Lord says, remember, try to remember, is there anyone that you've offended? And if you can remember anyone, you know, I think we'd want to be careful to avoid being a murderer. If there's anyone we've offended, put your gift down and go make peace with them. Go love that brother and forgive him completely and then come and offer your gift. That is the word of the Lord in verses 23 and 24, as it applies to the worship of God. You know, it's too bad that usually our hearts can only remember what others have done to us. Most people think that self-examination means thinking about what others have done to hurt your feelings. But real self-examination is what you've done to hurt others' feelings. What you, where you've had unjustified anger, or where you've said things about someone that wasn't suitable, did not match up with the Word of God. This is verses 23 and 24. You know where we often have some of our strained relationships? Or in our own family. On your way to the altar, do you think about how you're getting along with your spouse? What have you felt, thought, or said about or to them? How about your children? Have you been that unmerciful, overbearing, fast-talking, profane tyrant of a father? Children, have you done anything to disappoint your parents, to dishonor them? Don't bring your gifts. He's not impressed one bit. You're a murderer and you need to go get it taken care of. How about with your siblings? Brothers and sisters in here, when was the last time you called your brother or your sister? Raka, you stupid idiot. Don't you know better than that, you moron? When was the last time you went and apologized to a brother or sister? for the way you thought about them, felt about them, or spoke to them or about them, then come and offer your gift. You know what? We have the greatest act of worship in the New Testament church tonight, and that's the Lord's Supper. There should not be anything between any of us 
It is never the other person's fault. It is always and only your fault. All you have to do is forgive, overlook, and pass over their transgressions. Instead of resenting them or being angry about them. The Lord made it so simple. Just forgive people what they do to you. Forgive it and forget it. It's the only way to live a happy life. Some people just love to be miserable. They were, grown, they were taught that way. They had parents that way. And they grew up that way to be miserable all the time by always thinking about how they've been wronged by everyone. The happy way to live is the grief, the grief over how you've wronged everyone. So that you're going to them all the time and saying, I'm sorry for what I've done to you. I'm sorry for not being a better friend. That's a happier way to live. God will forgive that one. He's just going to hold resentment against you. And his anger is going to burn for you being a murderer in your heart on the other side. You know, the, the Pharisees and brethren were all Pharisees at heart. Right. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of, a nit, of anise and some other spices, but you have omitted the weightier matters of the law, Judgment, mercy, and faith. Judgment is treating other people fairly. Mercy is forgiving them when they did something against you. Faith is trusting God to take care of the rest. (laughs) The Pharisees were so good at paying tithes from their herb gardens. We're so good at getting dressed up on Sundays and making it to church on time. I'll bet you all are feeling good that you remembered to move your clocks ahead an hour, and what a sacrifice it was for you to make it here an hour early this morning. You know, that's paying tithes of mint, anise, and cumin, and forgetting the weightier matters of the law. The Pharisees were guilty of it. They'd be bringing their free will offerings, usually on their shoulders, where you could see it. Remember how Jesus stood one day in the temple and just watched, and the disciples turned and watched his gaze and saw... All these men, do you know what the Bible says? Blowing their trumpets in the street. That a great event was about to happen. They were about to reach into the trunk and pull out a big bag of cash and bring it in. They were going to drop it from a high height into the treasury and have it clang on the bottom. Jesus watched the little widow come in with her two mites. Their religion was all outward. We can never let our religion be that way. We need to come here after preparing our souls and our hearts to worship God by cleansing ourselves from all these things. Women, I'm always afraid that you spend more time in front of the mirror, more time with a brush, more time with your makeup, more time in looking at your clothes and checking, you, checking yourself out from every angle than you do in examining your hearts. I fear that. You should fear it as well. It's the proclivity of our nation. And it has always been the proclivity of women to do that. Isaiah 3 describes it in graphic detail, which I will teach to you soon, Lord willing. That's outward religion. And what we want to go after is on the inside. Am I a murderer or not? And we need to ask that in the light of what Jesus Christ has defined as murder in these verses. Let's not come to the Lord's Supper tonight with any such thing between any in here. Husbands and wives, parents and children, children and parents, children and children, and any of us with anyone else in here. The next two verses. Verses 25 and 26 describe our common relationships and our business dealings with men. There are six verses, and they are in three pairs. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus took the false doctrine of the scribes and Pharisees and corrected it for how God wants us to understand the words, Thou shalt not kill. Then he explained in verses 23 and 24, Do not come and worship me while, you're got, while you have blood on your hands and you're a murderer by not following my doctrine of verses 21 and 22. Then he says in verses 25 and 26, In all your dealings with men, get rid of your adversaries by giving in. 
You're out, whilst thou art in the way with him. That means you're on the way to court. While you're on the way to court, you're being sued at law because of something you've done. Give in right then. Give it up. Be reconciled to your brother. You say, that, may, that might cost me. Well, what do you want to pay? A few dollars now or a few eternities later? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus would answer that question that way. Agree with thine adversary slowly after you've got a pound of flesh from him. After you have felt good because you punished him a little? Or does it say agree with thine adversary quickly? There is nothing important enough in this life to be guilty of murder. And you are guilty of murder if you have an adversary that you can get rid of. And you can get rid of almost every adversary in the world by giving up your cause. Look what Jesus would say in the same chapter. Jesus would say in verse 40, And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Now that is when he is unjustified against you. Verse 25 is when he is justified against you. Because you've done something against him. Even when you're not justified. Even when some man is taking advantage of you. If it's small... Let him have it. Does he want your coat? It may have cost you 75 bucks. Give him your $50 cloak as well. Just take care of him. End the dispute. That's the religion of Jesus Christ. And it didn't change when the Apostle Paul began preaching it. Because the Apostle Paul said, Be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And do you know what he taught? And I've taught you this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 and 8. Suffer yourselves to be defrauded. Why in the world would you go to court against a brother? Now, let's think about it for a minute. To take a brother to court means it must have been a pretty serious thing. Right? To take a brother to court? To to, to walk up to someone in the church or to write them a letter or to send them an email or to walk up and say, I'm suing you. That's a pretty serious matter. It might have involved some dollars. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said? It is better to suffer being defrauded. You should just go ahead and be defrauded and lose that money by someone suing you than to go ahead or some matter, some, something they have done to damage your property and you're suing them for. Just go ahead and be defrauded. It doesn't matter. And I preached that and pounded on it when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that's what the Lord Jesus is teaching right here in verses 25 and 26. Agree with thine adversary quickly. Whilst thou art in the way with him, on your way to court, settle out of court, is what he's teaching. Because if you get to court, and he's using the Jewish laws as his example, if you get to court, you know what's going to happen. You have wronged your brother. The court's going to find in his favor. You're going to be turned over to the officer. You're going to be put in jail, and they will extract from you the last cent anyway. Why not just get rid of it right now and settle out of court? You'll probably be able to get away for less. If if you had stolen from someone, what did you pay back in Israel? Fourfold. If you stole from someone, you were going to pay back four. On the way to court, you could probably settle for one or two. So the Lord's saying, agree with thy adversary quickly. And you know, there's implied a whole lot more here. But it's only implied. The main lesson is Jesus is just using the court system of the Jews to point out that when you have an adversary, suffer yourself to be defrauded. If someone's suing you, give them what they want. And do it in the way. Do it quickly. As soon as you realize someone has something against you, go give it back. Go undo it. Go pay for the damages. Go apologize. Do whatever it takes to be restored and reconciled to that brother. Then forget it. Bury it all. In my kingdom, people get along. They don't fight. They don't get angry. They don't hate. They don't hold bitterness. They don't hold grudges in my kingdom. Is what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching. But you know, there's implied in here the lesson that if we do not agree with our adversaries in this life, the uttermost farthing will be extracted from us in the world to come. And that's when the Lord Jesus Christ puts us in prison 
and extracts from us for the sin of murder. Because all murderers shall have their part in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. So let's agree with our adversaries quickly. You know, the Bible teaches us, as much as lieth in you. What does it say after that? As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You mean it can be done? Yes. As much as lieth in you. And there's the problem. Some men have a righteous heart and they have a whole lot. Some men have a dried up, shriveled up heart and they don't have a whole lot. But the Lord said, as much as lieth in you, Paul taught, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Men in here, the spouse at home, children, employers, employees, neighbors, anyone you encounter in life. Live peaceably with all men. Romans 12, 18. That is Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Verses 21 and 22 are the lesson. You have heard preaching that told you that thou shalt not kill only applied to taking someone's life. I tell you that thou shalt not kill means and includes unjustified anger and name-calling and condemning someone else. And I'm telling you that if you have any of that guilt on your hands, don't come and worship me because it will not be acceptable. And I'm telling you in all of your relationships with men, get rid of adversity quickly. Get rid of your enemies by giving them whatever they want and make peace. Live peaceably. That's the wisdom that is from above. The wisdom that wants to fight and stand up for principle. It isn't principle. The only principle that matters in this universe is God's word. He doesn't care anything about you. He cares about his word. And often the things we call principle are just us defending our own names, defending our own feelings, defending our little rights. The Lord didn't say anything in here this passage about rights. He said everything about our responsibilities to live peaceably with others. And there's the lesson of Matthew 5, 21 through 26. I have an entire other sermon for you. I am halfway. I will try to do it in five minutes. So just listen and get the outline and I will have it on the website within 24 hours. I want to apply the text. The greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord thy God. The second greatest commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Loving others is the greatest commandment of the New Testament. It is repeated by far the most and it is stressed the most and it is emphasized the most and it pervades every book of the New Testament. God's commandments are exceeding broad. Now you listen. The Lord Jesus Christ has opened up the gates For how we're to understand the words, thou shalt not kill. Let me finish what he didn't say. Everything that I'm about to say to you is murder. Because it fits in either the internal motive that you have in your heart from unjustified anger. Or it matches up with words coming out of your lips that hurt other people. It is a horrible shame that we commit these sins that I'm about to list. It is a horrible shame that we allow others to commit them with relative impunity. I want to tell you something. If there was an unrepentant murderer in here, and we knew that he was a murderer, and we knew he was an unrepentant murderer, you would be watching him with three eyeballs. And if he ever said anything or got a glint in his eye, of anger toward anyone, you would rebuff him and stand him off to protect you and your family. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken and described what a real serial killer is. And if we were righteous, when we heard someone saying something negative about someone else, we would attack that and stop it. The Bible verse is Proverbs 25, 23, As the north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. Tailbearing. Tailbearing is murdering. Tailbearing is telling something about someone else, even if it's true, that that person doesn't need to hear. Doesn't really matter. Their wounds go down into the soul of men. Proverbs 18.8. 8. 
I'm not even going to give you the references. I've got tons of references here. If you doubt anything that I'm saying, tail bearing is just another form of using that mouth to kill someone. Instead of killing their body, you're killing their character. Instead of destroying their life, you're destroying their reputation. Giving a false testimony in court against the life or character of someone else is murder. If you do not rebuke a brother for sin, by God's definition, you're a hateful murderer. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Leviticus 19.17 Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy brother and save him from sinning. To not rebuke a brother when you see them in sin is murder. Because you are harboring hatred, why would you deprive someone of the righteousness of God by your willful laziness? Why would you not jump in and protect someone on and on we can go. Bearing a grudge against another, especially a brother, is a horrible sin. These are Bible words, Bible verses, Bible terminology. Thoughts, words, or actions out of revenge are devilish murder. If you do not forgive a repenting brother that comes to you, you are guilty of murder. Because you have such a hateful, selfish, proud, and angry spirit inside you that will not forgive someone, you're guilty of murder. And you will not be forgiven. If you do not resolve an offense that you cannot forget, you're a hateful murderer. You have no right to hold thoughts in your hearts that are negative about someone else. Get rid of them. If you've if you got such a little heart... Go take care of it with them. If you've got a big heart, just blow it off and forget it. Life is too short, and the Lord's too important, and they're too important for you to fuss with your little feelings. Scornful and unmerciful criticism and marking minor offenses is a violent crime. Isaiah 29, 20 and 21. It's called the terrible one in that passage. You're a terrible one if you make a man an offender for a word. If you pick on little things he does and overlooks his overall character, you're a terrible one and God is going to bring you to nothing because you're a murderer. Slandering a person by spreading lies about him. Obviously a hateful act of murder. Backbiting. What is that? Criticizing someone when they're not present. God hates backbiting in both testaments. Dishonor to parents. If you have thought evil things about your parents, I wish I could get each one of you and look you children in the eye. If you've thought evil things about your parents, if you've rolled your eyes at them to show your disdain for them, if you have cursed them or spoken against them, either by active or passive deeds, it's profane and seditious murder because you are trying to overthrow the authority in your life. You are having unjustified anger against someone that God put over you and that brought you into this world. And it's an unjustified capital offense worthy of death. There are people that think the only time that the Bible speaks of putting a child to death is Deuteronomy chapter 21. They are so mistaken and so ignorant of the word of God. There are over ten passages in the Old Testament and Jesus Christ confirmed them in the New Testament that rebellious and scornful children would be put to death. And it is a shame when parents coddle scorners because they're an accomplice of a murderer when they do that. No matter how well you hide secret sin, secret hatred, secret hatred, God counts it as murder. Whispering. Why all these Bible words? Slander. That's telling lies about someone. Backbiting. Criticizing them when they're not present. That's why it's called backbiting. You're biting them in the back because they're not there facing you. Tailbearing. Spreading tales about someone. That can be true tales. doesn't matter. It's still tailbearing. In school, it used to be called tattling. And just a few decades ago, you'd be in trouble in school for tattling. If you came, if, you know, little girls love to be tattlers. And they'd come whining in after recess. Well, Johnny did this to me. Johnny was doing this to me. Johnny was doing that. Well, do you know what in a real school happens? The little girl gets beat. Because that's tattling. 
It's tail-bearing. Now, when Johnny's out there and he's got a rocket launcher and he's about to blow up the school and kill ten kids, then the little girl can come in and respectfully say, Ma'am, I think we have a problem on the playground. But the little girls that come in whining all the time and the little children that come in whining all the time, and you cannot allow your children to do that. That is wicked hatred and it is murder. Why do you think they're telling you? Because they care about your authority? No. Because they hate that little troublesome sibling of theirs. Tailbearing. I'm going through, look at, now I've got whispering. Whispering. Coming up to someone and letting them in on some secret information about how bad this other person is. Or insinuating that they're bad. That's what the word whisper means. Because it's not clear and it's not direct speech. It's insinuating speech to put someone else in a bad light. And the Bible mentions it in both Testaments. It is murder. Instead of taking away their life, you're taking away their reputation. Instead of harming them physically, you're harming their soul. The words of a tailbearer and the words of a whisperer drop down to the inner parts of a man's soul. The book of Proverbs teaches us. Sexual defrauding of your spouse. If the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say, Thou shalt not kill and apply it to unjustified anger and apply it to calling someone worthless, I'm going to apply it to sexual defrauding of your spouse because that lasts a whole lot longer and is a whole lot more painful than if you put a bullet through their brain. Emotional, verbal, or sexual abuse by a spouse is an outrageous act of hatred and will be considered murder and a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Emotional abuse, verbal abuse of spouses at home and women are just as good at it as men. It just happens to be a little different. In fact, Solomon didn't know about a verbally abusive man. All he knew about is verbally abusive women who can't shut up. It is like torture. It is like tying a man down, letting drips of water drive him crazy. That's how Solomon describes it. And every man and every woman should think through, am I verbally abusive? Do I explode as a man and say things that I shouldn't have said? That's not showing the pity, the compassion, the patience, gentleness, love, and mercy of God toward my children. Am I an overbearing, nagging woman that's always got to be questioning, suggesting, and helping? Those things are Those things drive you crazy. The Bible says the earth cannot stand an odious woman because she causes so much pain. Now, if you're causing a lot of pain and you're doing violence to the life of a person, you're a murderer. Sarcastic criticism of another that demeans them, humiliates them, or shames them is murder. We cannot allow that in our homes at all. We have got to eliminate all sarcastic ridicule, barbs, jokes, jesting between children. They should love one another. Brotherly kindness should be an expression that we understand rather than one we think is an outdated anachronism. It's a dinosaur that died and was buried. We should have brotherly kindness in our homes. Proverbs 12, 18. I've got verses. I'm not giving them to you. I hope you understand that. Proverbs 12, 18. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword. Now, is that close enough to murder for you to call it murder? If unjustified anger is murder, and just saying rack is murder, there is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword. Every one of you children, watch the sword of your mouth. Every father, watch the sword of your mouth. Every woman, watch the sword of your mouth. You're a murderer. Do not lie about bitterness in your heart toward another. It's devilish in its origin. James said, lie not against the truth. If you have bitter envying and strife, if you have any difference in your heart with someone else, lie not against the truth. This wisdom doesn't come from above. This wisdom comes from beneath. It is sensual, devilish. Our Lord condemned anger. How much more would he condemn envy that he said was far worse than anger in Proverbs 27 and verse 4 when we envy someone else? An angry, overbearing, or unmerciful father is a terrible predator. But there's a God in heaven that's going to look out for every single persecuted child. Railing is abusive language like what Nabal said about David. 
reviling is to abase or abuse or degrade someone with words. Such a person shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven, 1 Corinthians 6.10. If critical speech between peers is murder, then what is answering again to someone in authority when you do it with anger and resentment toward them? How about debate, striving, fighting with another person in your words? It's a sin in the New Testament. It's fighting. The Lord knows what you would do if you could get away with it and if you had the opportunity when you want to fight people despite having a vicious, malicious attitude toward others. Evil surmising. When they do something wrong, you want to always think the worst to put them in the worst possible light you can. You're murderous in your thoughts about others. Malice. Holding ill will and bitterness towards someone else. Malignity. Deep-seated bitterness and ill will. These are Bible words of the New Testament. Scorn. Despising those that try to correct you and teach you. If anger with a brother is murder, then what is scornful resentment and despising someone that has tried to teach you or correct you? Sedition. Trying to overthrow authority. Strife. Which is fighting. It's the Bible word for fighting and having differences. Variance is a New Testament sin at being at variance with others and variance against the gospel. Do not despise murderers in your thinking unless you are free from our Lord's expanded interpretation of murder. We read the newspaper and we say, how terrible. The Lord's going to read the newspaper about your life and he's going to say, how terrible. Do not think highly of yourself in the sight of God until you are free from anger, name-calling, and all related sins. Do not presume that your worship of God is accepted when you have blood in your heart and on your hands. Do not yak about principle and about your rights or your importance when you fail to reconcile with your adversaries because Jesus didn't say anything about our rights. He said, just get it right with your adversary. And you can always do that by giving. It is impossible to fight with a pillow. While holy hearts and hands under the sixth commandment purify our worship, I hope we grasp the importance of being ready for the Lord's Supper tonight. Because remember what it's called? What's the Lord's table called? It's called the communion. Our common union. And our common union doesn't allow for anything that relates to murder by our Lord's definition. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ. I am nothing but his pitiful servant and mouthpiece. May we all, including the speaker, tremble and submit to the holy words of Scripture and the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. I hope you will never read it as quickly in the future as you have in the past, because we are all serial killers. And may God, through Jesus Christ, Have mercy upon each one of us.